Hey, 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 you guys. Thank y'all so much for being back once again for Black Canvas Season 8. And I love having new guests on the show. And you guys are going to learn a lot about my guest that I have today. Her name is Tiffany Ram. She is a licensed therapist at LCSW and founder of Gemini Wellness. Tiffany is passionate about helping others be their best authentic selves. She has come to learn that healing past trauma, learning coping strategies, and learning to manage stress are some of the best ways to help others do just that. Tiffany specializes in treatment of trauma, depression, anxiety, life transitions, and sex and sexuality. Tiffany has a unique niche of working with entrepreneurs, entertainers, performers, and professional athletes, teaching them the pillars to success and sanity. Tiffany is passionate about helping others succeed, maintain their success, and do so without sacrificing their sanity. And we're so grateful to have Ms. Tiffany here on Black Canvas. Thank you so much for making time to be here. We enjoy you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to have this conversation. Well, I'm really excited. I was telling Tiffany, you guys, before we started, how I just love talking to other people in the field, especially when we're in different parts of the world, um, because we get a chance to really connect in a different way. And so one of my best friends, actually, her name is Tiffany, and she's an LCSW as well. And so it's just a great thing to have another Tiffany 2.0 here on the show. <laughs> awesome. All right. So Tiffany, I created some fun questions that I thought would be really great for people to kind of dive into mental health and learn more about what you do. And if someone is maybe questioning getting help as relates to therapy, that we can kind of talk about just in general um, things that they can look for and maybe you'll be able to give them a lot of insight if that's okay. Yes, thank you. I'm happy to All do All right. That. So can you first tell our listeners what motivated you to want to become a therapist and how has being a therapist positively impacted your life? Yes, two like really important questions to me. And so interesting, interestingly enough, my story does start with a personal experience, which for so many of us healers, it, it does. Um, and in my case, I was a teen who struggled severely with anxiety, um, but had no idea that's what it was until I was, you know, 17 and having panic attacks um, and having to talk to my doctor about like what's happening and so once I learned that language and realized like how I thought, the ruminating thoughts, the overachieving, the pressure on myself wasn't necessarily quote unquote normative thinking or functional, um, that really opened the doors to me to understand like, oh, other people experience life differently. <laughs> um, so that's where like my interest in mental health started was just with my own struggle with um, anxiety medication didn't work for me. So as early as 17, I really committed to lifestyle changes that supported just a healthier lifestyle um, and reducing anxiety. Uh, and then specifically seeking mental health as a profession and as part of my healing um, services and how I choose to help heal people um, really was because I saw a gap in our community and black and brown communities um, as I went through my bachelor's program in social work um, and started doing some, you know, entry-level social work, realizing that there was a huge gap in providers of color and that I wanted to be someone who provided, you know, basically helped fill the gap in our communities um, because it is hard to find, even though there's more of us now than then, <laughs> um, a, a, a provider of color. Um, and that is really essential to many of us in the healing process. Um, so that's your first question. And then I think your second question, um, Jeria, was regarding like one of the more influential experiences that I've had being a therapist. Is that right? Yes, ma'am. Yes. I wish I could just pick one. The interesting thing about doing this work is that my clients affect me and my life and have an impact on me just as much as I have on them. Um, I regularly have clients tell me that I've changed their life and made a significant impact. I keep like a precious moments box essentially of all like the gifts, the small little crafts, the colored pictures, the handmade thank you cards, like all of that. So when I have a bad day, like I remember I'm good at what I do. <laughs> um, but more impactful, I think when I, when I really reflect on it was my ability to help a student really genuinely become her best self. 
Um, it was an internship in grad school, actually, where I was doing school social work for the first time. And the student was um, identified as having low IQ um, in special ed, identified as having, you know, behavior issues and missing school. Um, and essentially for my internship, the teacher, they're the, the other social worker on staff gave me like the 35 hardest special ed kids to try to like make an impact with. And so I was given free range to do like these intensive interventions with these kiddos. Um, and so in building a rapport with her, spending time with her and taking the time to really identify her barriers, she was actually living with her sister and like foster care, sleeping on the couch. Um, and I discovered that she just wanted money to wash her clothes. She was getting picked on at school for having dirty clothes, not being well kept. So therefore she would skip school to their babysit for her sister to stay home. And so once I learned that she was hand-washing her clothes in the sink because her sister didn't have enough money to pay for her laundry to get done to. So I made a deal with this kiddo that every Friday for our Friday check-ins, that if she had not skipped school, I would give her the $7 and quarters to wash her clothes. Within a semester, she went from D's and F's to A's and B's. And this is a kiddo that is identified as low IQ. <laughs> so just by providing an intervention that met her needs and like building the rapport with her to discover that for her to feel comfortable telling me her real story, like, hey, I'm sleeping on the couch, hand washing my clothes in the sink. She doesn't, you know, have the money to get my hair done. Like, I don't feel good about myself. This kid made a complete 180. And it was amazing. I love, uh, so. I love to hear that, <laughs> Tiffany. I mean, you don't understand how impactful. I think in the moment, we don't get that in the beginning of our careers of the type of impact that you can make. And just sometimes even the nuances of just the, the nonverbal cues that you can give someone. And that can definitely play a huge role in helping to reform that person's self-image. But also it helps them to understand that there are people out there who are not willing to take advantage and who really do care and can empathize, even though we can't actually be in their shoes. I think a lot of times people use sympathy as a way of connecting. And I feel like empathizing with an individual and also allowing them to, to grow up into that person that they've always envisioned, you know, we get to, to actually see that growth. And I, I, one thing I will say, especially working, I've worked in every aspect of counseling, I guess you can say. I've done inpatient, detox, PHP, IOP, private practice, residential, and I, I've seen it all. And it's one of those things when I remember seeing clients coming in who had maybe multiple times within that year, and they'll come back in and you see that dejected look on their face mm -hmm. where oh my God, you know, Jerry's going to beat me up. And I always come in, my statement is to clients, what can we do differently? It's never, mm -hmm. I screwed up, I made a bad choice. Well, we know that you've made a, a choice that you maybe felt was uncomfortable, or maybe that was something you were used to doing in the moment. And so you relied on that as your coping mechanism. So mm -hmm. I always tell people, hey, you know, I'm not here to beat you up. You've done enough of that on your own. Let's try to reframe those thoughts but also just to kind of be that blanket to kind of help someone to shield themselves. And when they're ready to take it off and just say, hey, you know what? I don't need this to cover me anymore. I can be myself. Right. Then we can be a part of that journey and we can propel that, that client to the stratosphere. And I think you were able to obviously connect in a way where she'll never forget those moments because you had a, a deep imprint in her life. Yes. And as a healer, having to own that, right? Like, of course, over my career of 15 years now, um, I've developed a lot more skills and, you know, my practice is different, but the essential, like you said, is empathy that I came in with all these varied life experiences myself to allow me to say, like, I don't necessarily know how you feel, but I want to listen and I'm here in the moment with you. Um, and, and that's really essential. Like, I'm not going to feel bad for you, but I'm going to meet you where you're at. Exactly. I think you just hit the nail on the head for sure. Meeting people where they are. We talk about stages of change. Mm -hmm. I think that's one thing in the beginning, novice stages of counseling for me, 
because um, I originally have a background in accounting and business. So I have degrees in both. And then I switched careers. So I've been counseling for eight years. And I will just never forget, like in my mind, it was like, oh, I just want this person to get get it right now. And I was like, wait a minute, like that's not how it works. And and you find out through trial and error. And I'm so sorry for any client that had me in the beginning of my counseling because <laughs> I was definitely green. Let's put it that way. <laughs> and I just learned a lot through that experience. But I feel like when you have other, not only seasoned counselors around you, but people who really do love you and say, hey, you know, Jerry, that wasn't the best way to handle that. And Jerry, maybe just think about this. Active listening skills are so important in the beginning stages of counseling because, you know, clients will tell you what they want you to know. And when they feel comfortable enough to go to that next stage, they have to, first of all, find the comfort in themselves before finding it within you. Right. And once they get to that point, it's like the floodgates will start to to just unravel those issues. And my my funny thing I always like to tell my coworkers, um, and they always left. They're like, Jerry, how do you get people to cry? You don't even say a word. I'm like, I'm not getting them to cry. They just feel comfortable right. enough to express, and that's their means of expression. So I I love that you like I said, you made that huge impact. And who knows, maybe that might even help that individual to start a career or a job that they never thought they were capable of doing because of that one moment with you. Yes. And because of years of school social work too, I, I have those success stories and not successes in monetary, but like I, I can see because of social media and whatnot, like where my students are now. And I'm like, oh my gosh, look at you go. <laughs> so it is nice to be able to see where they land, which is in the past, we didn't always have that as providers, you know, they kind of like terminate treatment and then it's like over, you know, but um, because of the rapport I have and the boundaries I set, they do send, you know, appropriate updates occasionally. And it's nice to see that. That's awesome. And I really want to kind of dive deep into as we're talking about counselors. I want to go into another question, which is what are some key factors um, that you feel has given you success and sanity in the field of counseling? So I want to first start with that question. So something I spend a lot of time on, and interestingly enough, I am a therapist to therapist. I have a few clients right now that are fellow pro, you know, practitioners as well, um, or like at the associate level of licensing. And the, the pillar here is really actually having to practice what we preach. A lot of us know these things in practice. We studied them, we have the research, we know what works, but we use the same excuses as providers and healers that all of our clients use, right? Well, I'm so busy and I need to help everybody and all these like dysfunctional, distorted thoughts that keep us from doing exactly what we know works and that we preach every day. So my foundations that I teach about, you know, the pillars of success and sanity are coping skills, which are reactionary. They're in response to a stressor. Boundaries, which include financial boundaries, time management boundaries, personal and professional boundaries, self-care, which is preventative, and then your support systems, which include both professional and personal support systems. And so usually when I'm talking to other therapists or other helpers and healers is talking about not that these things are equal, but that are they complementary? Like, are these things in balance with one another on a consistent basis? Because that's what gives us resilience. And you you have made a huge point when we talk about resiliency in general, when we talk about bouncing back from situations or experiences. Mm -hmm. I think that's one of the hardest things for a counselor to seek help with other counselors because they may feel, you know, I already have the tools and I can work it out within myself. And I think that's a huge component just being able to say, I need help. And mm -hmm. that person is willing to meet me in the middle, or maybe they can give me some insight on using the same modality that I'm used to using with clients, but in a different way that actually will help me to better serve my clients and myself. And so I feel like that's that soul searching part. If we go to like Jahari's window as an example, we, a lot of the times it's hard for us to get to the last quadrant, which is that self-discovery component. Right. Because for many people, we're stuck in a blind area or the facade. And so I feel like we we sometimes go through those challenges. But once we can get past that blind area, we can actually start to 
to find ourselves in the process, I, I believe at least. Yes. And like you said, it's as a as practitioners ourselves, it's it requires a certain level of vulnerability because again, we bring all those preconceived notions with us. Are they going to judge us if I don't have these things mastered? <laughs> and I always remind people like, no, <laughs> like, because we have the same difficulties are all human. Um, and I honestly really usually preached. I don't, I personally wouldn't go to a therapist who hasn't done therapy, right? Like it, it does require a certain level of empathy to know what it takes to be on the other side of the chair, right? To be the person being vulnerable and sharing you know, something that you are struggling with and asking help for. Um, and so when I've done therapy, that's usually my first question. Like, have you ever done therapy? <laughs> um, because I want you to have like some empathy for like the level of vulnerability it takes to start the process. 100%. And I feel like, you know, there's room at the table for different discussions and different mm -hmm. types of therapy and interventions that work. And then we also have to be careful about what we actually provide through telehealth versus in person, which yeah, we're gonna kind of hit on that in a little mm -hmm. bit. But I do wanna go into compassion, fatigue and burnout, because mm -hmm. I feel like that is something that if a counselor hasn't gone through burnout, you probably will at some point for sure. Um, but I wanna kind of talk about, are there any tips that you can give to help counselors to reduce the likelihood of developing either burnout or compassion fatigue? Yes. So when I, when I talk about boundaries like time um, and then also the boundaries with finances, that's usually where like the conflict that causes compassion fatigue. It's not even like the exposure to vicarious trauma or like consistently hearing other people's trauma. It's the other factors surrounding that environment, which is, you know, do you have a supportive, you know, supervisor? Do you have a consultation team? Do you feel like your caseload is too heavy? Do you feel like you're not getting paid adequately? And so like preventing burnout actually has a lot more to do with those factors and making sure again they're in balance than actually the exposure to the trauma that we hear and are, are exposed to as helpers and healers. And a lot of people forget that. Um, again, yeah, like if you're exposed to vicarious trauma on a, a, a regular basis and then you don't get proper time off or you feel like you're underpaid or you don't have proper medical care, you're raising the stressors that are going to make your resilience lower. And so those are really the true risk factors. So when people are like, how do I prevent compassion fatigue? When we talk about child, you know, child protection workers and child protection investigators and adult protection workers and those kinds of people and firefighters and police officers is, yeah, like, do you have adequate time off? Do you actually have an emergency response team in place? You know, does someone actually ask you if you're okay after you have a tough case? <laughs> <laughs> um, if you don't have those things in place, you are at high risk for burnout. Absolutely. Um, if we're not getting paid adequately for our helping services, you're probably going to leave the profession to do something else. And I, I agree with that statement. I think the hardest part about when we talk about the money component is that you'll have, and this is one thing that has always frustrated me, I would say in the beginning of my career, I'll never forget hearing, you know, the minute when someone decides, hey, I want to kind of take a break or look for something else then you'll sometimes hear a lot of companies say, oh, well, we have the money now. And it's like, are you kidding? Like, <laughs> that that's not a, a way of keeping someone at a company is now, now we can find the money and we can change things around. You really want people to invest in you. And I've had some amazing bosses. I will say some people really mm -hmm. would go the extra mile and administrators who knew the importance of client care. And my whole thing mm -hmm. is, is, you know, money will come and go as it relates to this career, but client care has always been number one for me. So if I'm advocating for something specifically, it's in relation to what the clients need versus it, it, what I need, you know, and if they're getting what they need, then I will be able to gain what I need as well. But you're right. I think those discussions need to be had on the front end and the back end. And I feel mm -hmm. like um, that's why whenever I go in for a job interview, I believe in negotiating and I don't just right. go with the first statement. We're going to go over not only my experience, but what I can bring. And I will show you in the numbers. And so I feel like that's always something that keeps me motivated is to 
not only showed the the owners and other people there that hey there's value in counseling and what we do but that this isn't just a money game this is about people's lives and we need to be able to discuss that on the front end and then that way if i ever do get to the point where i'm feeling overwhelmed then if we've already had this discussion on i need time off i need to do this and not to be called Mm -hmm. or text in between those hours because that's not quote unquote time off i'm still working and so i think like once you said like you said a healthy boundary and you're consistent with the boundaries you're setting then you don't allow other people to take advantage of some of the kind moments that we can share um, because of the compassion we have for our careers right but yeah tiffany it's a hard road i tell you (laughs) and everybody is at a different place in regards to like how do we charge for a service or finding value Um, And similarly about being about client care. Um, And again, everybody's journey looks like very different. Um, And and my my standard that I tell people is you can make a living for your standard of of living that you have for yourself, whatever that looks like, doing what you love and you're meant to do. Um, And I've always led my career that way because I remember when I was young, I've always been an overachiever. I tell people that, you know, like a habitual overachiever. Um, And, you know, my family was, I was the first one to go to four-year college. Um, And, you know, everybody's like, you could be a doctor, a lawyer, or this or that, because they're thinking about you're smart enough to make high money, right? Big dollars. (laughs) And when I said I'm going to school for social work, they didn't see it right? They're like, why would you do that? You're not going to make any money. And I said, who said, you know, even then young, I was like, I knew I can make money to support my standard of living, doing what I love. And really, truly, where there's a will, there's a way. And now, of course, fast forward years later, I'm one of the highest income earners in my family. And I can truly say I'm probably one of the the most, you know, impact driven professions of everybody in my family. And so to, to be able to role model that role model that to people like you can genuinely do what you love and be a healer be whatever category of life it is and still make you know the money that sustains your standard of living like you don't have to like reduce that standard of living just because oh yeah I'm going to be you know a therapist or I'm going to be a social worker I'm going to be this Um, you can still make whatever amount of money you need to sustain that standard of living. I love that. And I think someone needs to hear that today. So I'm so glad you brought that up. I feel like because sometimes we can live outside of our means or we'll tell ourselves that we don't, we can't set realistic goals for ourselves mm-hmm. in certain professions. And you'll hear that a lot when you hear like with teachers, mm-hmm. counselors, they're like, oh, I don't make enough. And it's like, you can still be successful and you can still be able to make a considerable amount of money and survive. But sometimes we have to be very creative in the ways we do things or like you said, negotiating and talking about that on the front or back end. Maybe after a year or two, we can sit down and have a discussion on, you know, maybe this will help towards CEUs or conferences or you right. know, licensure. So I feel like there's just always time to discuss. And the great thing we teach our clients to give themselves times to get to know themselves and to grow into who they want to become. We have to do the same thing and model that behavior and the conversations we have with our professionals. Exactly. And and my phrase for that, and I think so many other people use it too, because it just makes sense is to give yourself grace, right? And part of like these conversations, like what's missing is like giving yourself grace. You know, we, I teach through everything I do is that we are uh, creatures that are, we learn through repetition And so, no, the behavior is not going to change after you say it one time. You know, I talk about this in couples therapy, like, well, I told him once. I'm like, well, that's just not how we work. So you're going to have to be a little patient and you might actually have to repeat it multiple times because that's just how we learn. Um, And so give yourself grace in, you know, healing yourself and changing your own behaviors and changing your own expectations. 100%. I mean, I think you you are making a lot of huge points for for people who don't know how to give themselves grace, it's going to be a process as well. And it's like muscle memory. When we think of athletes, I know you've worked with athletes it's from your bio. It's something to remind ourselves of is that they don't just become that next um, Kobe Bryant or LeBron James or, you know, we can name a lot of those athletes <laughs> that we've heard of. 
and it takes years. It takes time. It takes following. It takes, you know, motivating coaches, all these things that can help you get there. But then you have to remind yourself just because you're number one now in your career does not mean that you don't still have to work toward being the best that you can be each year. I mean, Serena Williams is probably the best example. I love her. Mm -hmm. One of my favorite athletes. But, you know, she not only being a mother, being an African-American woman mm -hmm. facing a lot of challenges, but she still was herself. And right. she can go out with grace because she's telling people that I have other things in life that bring joy to me, but I can still compete at the highest level because I'm taking care of myself. Right. Um, and they, you know, mentioning that, I think the part that people forget is one success has so many different definitions. So it's not just financial, but maintenance is actually one of the more difficult skills to master. And like, yeah, once you get to number one, it actually takes a lot of effort, if not more to maintain that status at whatever it is you're doing or your goal is than the actual getting there often right? Like even the Le LeBron James and the Kobe Bryants, once they got to the top or they were first draft picks, right? It's like, well, now you're in competition every year with who is the next first draft pick, right? Like there's always someone coming and chasing for that record. There's always someone who wants to be doing what you're doing or be at your level. Um, and so mastering maintenance is its own thing. It's like its own skill set, but all of those resilient skills feed into that. And so that's why when I talk about like success resilience, it's all the skills you need to get to be successful without losing it are all the same skills you need to maintain it. 100%. And I feel like you said, mastering it can be different for each person, but it also mm -hmm. goes back to what are you looking for in yourself through mm -hmm. the process and the journey. I always tell people when they say, why not me? I'm like, Oh, they said, why me? And I said, why not you? Why not you go through these challenges? But at the end of it, the challenge doesn't have to defeat you. It's just giving you other maybe pointers or you're seeing other people's experiences and you don't have to compare yourself to it. You can just use that as a great roadmap of this works for them. Now I can prove to myself that I can do what works for me and be okay with, with defeat because defeat doesn't mean that it's over. It just means, hey, I just have to kind of learn how to pivot differently and, and maybe slow down. I think that's one of the hardest things you'll see mm -hmm. with clients. They just want the quick fix or a lot of times they go back to euphoric recall. They love the feeling that they received from certain exactly. situations. And so you're like, I hear what you're saying and, and I can respect what you're saying, but can we just kind of look at it? And I always like to play devil's mm -hmm. advocate at times. Like, can we look at every avenue, um, every aspect of what you're saying and then I want you to be able to see if you can find a positive automatic neutral thought to it instead of us going immediately into automatic negative thinking. So right. um, that's my yeah. ants versus pants I love to talk about. <laughs> yes. And that's like the distorted thoughts, right? And they're like, everybody's like, how do I, how do I stop the anxiety? And I'm like, well, we got to do a lot of cognitive work around stopping the negative thoughts. And that's usually where I start a lot of work with a lot of people because there's so many different strategies to do that and it's like which one works for you so that's when I talk about like your individualized plan individualized plan like yeah there's a there's a handful there's a plethora of cognitive ways to like readdress and reassign and reframe and deflect these thoughts um but which one's going to work for you you know um some of my clients like really love and thrive off coping cards and I only do like two or three at a time because it's like yeah write the negative thought but like yeah what is the opposite <laughs> opposing action or positive thought that's opposite of that. So you can have it handy. Some of them need the physical tangible. Other clients, totally the opposite. They're like, no, tell me the stop think strategy to that. Like, you know, in real time, what do I do? Um, so everybody's different. Um, cognitive work is definitely essential, but I my practice approach is if there's trauma present, um, I always treat trauma first. Um, but not everybody has trauma. So <laughs> um, I think this like leads into one of the questions you had like um, set was in regards to like trends and stuff. And so I was like, oh yeah, I'm gonna reserve that thought for later because um, there's a lot of stuff that's trendy right now, but people aren't aware of like how that actually is detrimental to them. You know, like, okay, like WebMD has actually made some of us just more paranoid. 
Um, so like, how does this benefit us as the general public and whatnot, or like what pitfalls are there? So um, some people think they have trauma and they don't, or those kinds of things, right? Um, or if you have immediate symptoms that aren't trauma related, like, yeah, let's leave your trauma alone and just address these, these present, like very acute symptoms you're having. 100%. I, I, well, I can't tell you, <laughs> Tiffany, how many times, oh, I, I looked this up and this is what it, I'm like, oh my goodness. Like, and, and it, you can get caught down a rabbit hole so quickly with that, just reading, reading, reading. And if you really don't have enough information, then you just start insinuating this is where my life is going to be versus this is actually what's going on. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I think you're you're right. I mean, we all can just sit there and do that for a minute, but I, I try to stay as far away from my phone when I can. Um, and if I know I need a professional answer or something, I'll ask someone and then mm-hmm. um, see if it fits, you know, because sometimes <laughs> it could just be where we are in the moment and our mind is saying, oh my God, this is what it is. But it has nothing to do with it. <laughs> yeah. So Tiffany, I want to kind of talk about something that I think we both have a passion for, but I think it's something that people need to know more about. Um, when we talk about the importance of visibility and connectivity with people of color in sessions, um, can you kind of talk about just the importance of seeing people like yourself um, in sessions or that when clients maybe reach out to you saying they're so glad to see someone like you on the other side of the chair? Yes. So something interesting about my experience, I guess, and that has has come to kind of validate itself in my practices, being biracial, specifically black and white. Um, And that I make a point to try to put that in a lot of my profiles and make that pretty apparent for folks, just because people do have their pre, you know, conceived understandings of what that means. And so there are, you know, uh, black clients that maybe think I don't empathize or won't have the right perspective given that identity. Um, so they might not want to match with me. Um, whereas some are like, no, you still get it. <laughs> um, but more importantly is filling this gap for um, biracial clients. And so it's happened time and time again, where I do have biracial clients that, you know, show up and that's specifically why they picked me because they wanted someone who could, you know, empathize with this very unique shared experience. Um, that is kind of, there's like a gap in care for that, right? And I explain it as like kind of the third consciousness, the third eye, which is a lot of people demand at some point, like the acculturation process of being biracial and multiracial is like this or that, or, you know, black enough, white enough. Um, what does that mean? Um, and then being in a space where they they know I know that like, you're never either or, you're always both. <laughs> <laughs> Um, right. But that, you know, manifests itself differently on a second to second basis. Um, and usually people have these very unique experiences coming into their biracial identity, right. And what that looks like and the spectrum. And so being to be a, being able to be a provider that specifically can serve that population, um, is really fulfilling because there is a gap. And I do remember kind of feeling like kind of out of place with some just black therapists or some just white therapists and trying to articulate like these childhood experiences and not really getting the validation back that I was like hoping for. <laughs> right. right, right. Um, and so being like, Oh yeah, I'm the therapist that exists now that can provide that to that population. Um, because yeah, it, you know, trying to explain like, yeah, the first exposure to, to racism was my own family. <laughs> like, you know, like, yeah, <laughs> you know, um, and not every provider is like prepared for that, you know, and having that conversation. So now that I'm a provider in the community that's able to serve that population, I'm like, yay, doing exactly what, what I wanted to do. But specifically, I'm holding space for a population that is often experienced microaggression in the therapeutic environment. Um, and, you know, there's all this hype around cultural competency and all that jazz. Um, but a lot of people just having blind spots to, yeah, I can experience microaggressions in the therapeutic process. And that I think just having other providers of colors serving clients of color reduces the likelihood of that happening. 
and for healing to actually take place. I love the way you said that, Tiffany, and especially ending with healing to take place as it relates to just a lot of experiences that people can have. I think one of my major setbacks that I had in the beginning of my career, um, especially when I worked in certain inpatient settings, is that um, the comment I would get pretty often is, oh, you're pretty smart. And, and I'm like, oh, okay. And I didn't understand what it meant until someone said, oh yeah, for a black person, you're pretty smart. And it was something that kind of threw me and it kind of took me back to a experience I had in my first real major job interview. Mm-hmm. And I remember being 16, going on 17 years old. This was right before my grandfather passed away. And he had bought me my first real suit. I was just so happy to kind of go in for this interview. And I talked to this guy on the phone. Everything was great. I walk in waiting in a waiting room and like so many people walking past me and like this interview was for the morning and like it's getting to like middle evening almost like mm-hmm. afternoon and I'm waiting 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 and, and he just kept looking at me and kept going and calling everyone else in who didn't look like me and I'll never forget he was like so what are you here for and I said I'm here for an interview and he's like for what job and I told him the name of the job he was like oh really and so as we were talking I'm just waiting to kind of see how things are going to go And then he goes to a point where he says, oh, so what's your name? And I said, my name. And he's like, oh, you're Jerry? I'm like, yeah. He's like, well, you didn't sound black on the phone. And I just never forget that moment when he said, you didn't sound black on the phone. And something in me just, you know, it was just, and I was not at the stage I am now maturity wise, but I did say, I was like, so how do African-American people sound? And his response to me was, Oh, I didn't mean anything by that. (laughs) And so, and I told him in that moment, I said, well, I perceived in the way you said that, that there was an issue in how I sounded or presented myself, but my name is Jerry and I would love to still interview with you. Mm -hmm. And so I did. And the interview, he hit me with every question that he thought I didn't know. But what he didn't know is I studied for a whole week. So I knew everything about the company. (laughs) And so every question I answered was perfect. And at the end, he just kind of gave me a look like, oh, wow, like you really have it together. So the thing that I I didn't get the job was because I didn't finish, you know, college. And he was like, well, get back to me in four years. And I knew what that meant. But it was one of those moments where I remember crying when I left the interview and my grandfather pulled me aside and he said, no, he said, you need to wipe your tears. Mm-hmm. he said it's not what people call you it's what you answer to right and it just was such a a moment for me and I've used that phrase many times outside of counseling just in general and I have to remind myself people have the perception and they have a right to feel and speak how they choose if I choose to personalize it and make it just about race or just about that then that's my own issues that I need to work through this guy could have been ignorant and not knowing what he was saying. And so I didn't use that as something to say, oh, well, I'm never going to ever get hired again because of one person's ignorance. What I did use that was a great example for every other interview I went into. I was always prepared and I always came in with a smile, with a direction, a thought, and said, this is how I'm going to go in. And I'll never forget my second to last job interview I just did recently, a few months ago for another job. And they had this guy that was in there. And it was so funny because he was the only other African-American in the interview. And I never forget him telling me, he said, you do, you did us proud, man. I'm like, oh, Lord. But it was the way he said it. He was like, you did us proud in that interview. He was like, this is the best interview I've ever had in 20 years, he said, of me interviewing people. Mm-hmm. So it was just such a full circle moment for me to go mm-hmm. from, you know, literally <laughs> almost 20 years back that I was able to kind of go in two totally different careers Mm -hmm. And to sit in a room full of people who were firing questions at me, I wasn't ready for it, I thought in the moment, but I handled it well. And to get that type of, you know, affirmation and to kind of affirm in me that, you know what, you do know what you're doing and you are worthy Mm -hmm. of whatever you choose. And it just really helped me to move forward. So I was very grateful in that moment, but it definitely, it it just reminds you that, you know, perception is, is key in what people think but it doesn't have to be your reality. Absolutely. And it was, so basically that story, Jero, is like one of the reasons why I love serving black and brown communities also, right? Because the experience you describe happens 
every day to many, many black and brown people and specifically men, right? And so one benefit to me being another person of color serving our community is that when they describe those, those stories over and over again and why they're discouraged and I can say, I believe you. Like, this is a safe space. I believe you, you don't have to explain it. Um, and to hold a space to say like, I know systemic racism exists. I know it presents itself in some pretty, you know, covert ways and no, you're not crazy, right? Like, yeah, you might not have gotten that job because you're a black, but what do we do next? You know, and to validate them in that experience, a lot of black and brown men specifically have been invalidated and they don't have necessarily these experiences of having validation from other women of color. And so the feedback I've gotten in giving therapy specifically to black and brown men is that for a lot of them, it's the first time they've had positive validation and reassurance and encouragement from another woman of color. And so to be able to role model that to them, like, no, not all black women, you know, are short tempered. Not all of them have these different kinds of expectations. Not all of them are this, but to get that response, what do you need to do too? And to be able to provide a safe place for them to kind of practice new behaviors and practice new mindsets is that's what's like life-changing and game-changing for them. Because they're like, oh, there's a Black woman who cares, who's patient and listening and validating and giving me solutions, right? And so that's one of the things I really take pride in is that, yeah, I give them this, a safe space to demonstrate their full range of emotion. Yes, I do have the clients that cry. I don't do it on purpose. I'm not seeking it. They're like, I wasn't, I, I didn't even want to cry. And I'm like, Hey, I'm not, I'm not here for that. Right. Like that's not like my like pinnacle marker of being a good therapist is making people cry. But like you said, it's a sign that they felt safe and comfortable enough to reach that level of vulnerability especially for black and brown men, crying is something that they're socially told that they can't or shouldn't or, you know, don't do. And so for them to be able to shed cheers in session with me is a big deal. It and it's huge for that. Mm-hmm. 100%. And I love to say this, um, Tiffany, I had a supervisor that once told me this. And she said, if you ever have a client that says that they can't cry, she said, you can ask them, what do your tears say about you? And just to kind of allow them to explain, like, if they hold the tears in, if there's only one tear, if it's a stream of tears, mm-hmm. like, it can be where they actually are as it relates to expressing themselves. And it doesn't mean that they have to judge themselves because they're not fully able to share in the way that they've seen others do it, but right. that they can share it in a way that works for them. And that still can be okay. And I feel like there's such a toxic uh, masculinity, masculinity, excuse me that you start to see and that can be ingrained from a very young age of what Mm -hmm. people have been told is how men how women how anyone should act and then when you add for some people the religion religion or spiritual Mm -hmm. aspect um it can be even harder like why are you Mm -hmm. talking about secrets in the household that should be kept here and so you you go into those components so i always tell my clients just in general like i would tell anyone you know, you need to know what you're asking each individual person for, and mm-hmm. are they capable of being able to provide those services? If not, what other, you know, methods and ways are you going to be able to fill your tank without mm-hmm. feeling as though that you're inadequate or putting too much pressure on someone who is not capable or have the expertise to assist you in right. something that you're needing help for? Exactly. Um, and that's why I definitely like my Instagram and whatnot. I was like, how to, how to find the right therapist for you. And no, it's not just whoever's in network for you. Please, Lord, no. <laughs> um, I explained like finding a therapist and any helper is like finding a good pair of jeans, right? And so identifying what's important to you is like, if you really don't know what you need, okay, then you need to get like an assessment, talk, figure out a little more direction, but most people know what they're going for, right? Like general relationship issues, money, stress, like grief, like you have a general idea. And so, you know, I talk about, you know, making sure to identify is race important to you? Cause it's okay. It's okay to say, I only want another black therapist, right? It's, 
is gender important to you? Would you feel more comfortable talking to another man or would you prefer to be a woman? You know, and to identify those things to make that experience more likely to be comfortable because the healing and the change does come in your ability to build rapport with that person. You know, it's this tug of war between accountability and support that helps them make the change for themselves. Yes, I, and you, I want to go back to circle what you said. Please don't just take someone because they're in network. <laughs> yes. Oh my God, because so many people be like, oh, I had a bad experience with a therapist. And I'm like, well, tell me about that. And as soon as they tell me, I'm like, yeah, they weren't for you. Mm-hmm. Right? And, and that's not where you were at that time. And I feel like that's a hard thing. Sometimes you'll see that happen a lot is that some clients will come back to the same counselor, even in certain settings because there's a familiarity and they don't feel like reopening the same wound again Mm -hmm. and saying, hey, I have to tell this story and I feel like I'm re-traumatizing myself. And so I always say is that, you know, it's just like when it's like a new hello. When you talk to someone, you can say it in different languages, but you can still express it in a different way. Like it doesn't have to be the same cadence in the way you say things. It can be a different expression and it doesn't have to reopen the wound because as you talk and you heal and you work through some of these concerns, it's not the same as the first time. Um, right. I know my history of abuse and things I experienced, you know, I can talk about it now without completely going into a panic attack. You know, many years ago, I could not, I couldn't share it. I didn't feel comfortable right. talking about it because I felt like, how can I discuss this openly and not get angry? But anger comes from fear and pain. And I feel like I've learned where some of the pain stems and I don't have the same fear that I once had. And so I feel like fear can fuel you and you can use that to be able to connect with people, but we don't have to have a trauma bonding experience through this. This can be my trauma. And I I love Dr. David Kessler. Um, He made a great point in one of his webinars and he said that we're not pain collectors as counselors. You know, that is not our job. You know, everyone Mm -hmm. has a right to hold their pain, but we can sit with people in their pain and allow them to express themselves Mm -hmm. and to know that they have a safe space with us. And so, yeah, I I do believe, yeah, if you have to pay cash, pay for who you need. (laughs) Right. Like, don't just get stuck with the in-network or it may take a while. Right. And so that's the the issue now with, you know, a shortage in some places. I'm in California. So it's like, you know, people are waiting for six, eight weeks. And if you feel like you have an acute issue, you're like, just give me anybody. But just taking whoever may actually could make it worse. Right. If they're not a good fit for you, now they've turned you off from therapy. Um, Now it's like done more damage than good. (laughs) Right. Right. You know, I explain like to people that, yeah, you should shop them um, and make sure, you know, it feels as comfortable as an uncomfortable thing can feel. <laughs> <laughs> you are coming in a state of vulnerability, right? But, you know, there it's kind of like finding like the right wedding dress or the perfect suit or whatever. You'll kind of know when it's a good fit for you. And that's why, you know, when I do do a consultation or we're in, you know, an intake and maybe the communication style isn't a good fit. Um, recently I had someone say that like we were trying to schedule and they're kept being like weird scheduling glitches and she was just like really frustrated and she said well I, I just the way we're communicating I don't think we'd be a good fit I think she thought she was insulting me <laughs> and I just took a breath and I said you know what I agree because of how we're having communication issues I don't think my style would be a good fit for you so I do wish you the best and you know if you need a referral I'm happy to assist you with that and that kind of stopped her dead in her tracks you know, she's like, wait, what? I'm like, no, you're, you're right. I don't think you'd be a good fit. Now I'm at a place in my practice where I'm not just taking everybody, right? It's not just about numbers. It's not just about caseload and dollars. Um, and so, yeah, if you're not a good fit, um, I'm going to let you know that. Like, yeah, I think you need someone who's going to communicate a little different or who's going to meet, you know, your urgency in a different way. Um, and so that kind of stopped her down in her traction. She said, oh, really? I said, yep. Um, I'm happy to give you referrals. I can refer you out. Um, but I, I agree with you. I don't know if this would be a good fit for us. And, and she's like, oh, okay. <laughs> and we went from there. I just referred her out because I was like, oh yeah, um, this particular person was a different ethnicity and like background. And um, I think probably uh, thought they were another class step ahead of me. Um, and so 
the the power dynamic they were trying to assert over just even the intake process, I was like, yeah, this isn't going to be a good dynamic for our healing process. So you should probably see somebody else. But I'm glad that you were able to to be very strong-minded and assertive in your communication, but also still giving her the respect to know that she has the, mm-hmm. the freedom of choice. And yeah. I feel like that's one of the things, especially for beginning counselors, you have to just remember to kind of give them the opportunity to kind of think through and remember that sometimes they're not thinking logically in the moment. They are thinking based on impulse, mm-hmm. but just being also aware that um, as we talked about with active listening earlier, that it's going to be, it's going to take years for some people or some people can pick it up mm-hmm. a lot sooner to, to pick up between the lines of what someone is, is telling you or trying to show you. And so it's not for us to fully think we know what's going on or assume <laughs> that this is what they're saying. I'm, I'm a very blunt but empathetic counselor and anyone who knows my style, I do not beat around the bush. Right. Um, I feel like we don't have time to be around the bush right. when it comes to certain details and certain levels of care. But mm-hmm. if it's something where I'm working with someone privately, of course, we have a lot of time and energy that we can expel in different ways. And then we can match the goals, whether if it's based on talk therapy or whatever that person needs, we can figure mm-hmm. it out from that component. But that also goes back to when you do an intake and you're doing assessments, you really have to do a thorough uh, mm-hmm. assessment. I like to call myself like an investigator <laughs> when I'm doing some of mine, because I'm like literally getting to the root cause of a lot of things, or at least trying to identify things to then be able to know if it matches well, or if I know someone who really specializes better than I am in this and can assist. Right. Um, so I try my best. When you tell me something, I want to know everything <laughs> that I can find out to really assist. And I know everyone's style is different, but I feel like once you get used to what works for you and -hmm. still being able to take different pieces from things we learn when we're going to um, either webinars or or conferences, there's things we can always change and and always be a sponge that we can take information and use it in different ways. And that's why I love talking with you, Tiffany, because even though we're miles away, we still have a love for what we're doing. Yes. But we're also open-minded to still taking suggestions to, to improve ourselves. Always. I love consultation for that because you said, I think you said something earlier in the conversation around like getting different perspectives on like how to practice or how something might work for um, a client. And that's where like providing therapy for therapists. Um, I know my one client just called me her, her grand therapist. That's what she's nicknamed me. Um, and that, you know, she'll ask where we do incorporate some CBT and DBT and she happens to be a DBT specialist, but she'll be like, well, how do you teach it to your clients? Right. (laughs) So she's like, I'm working on this. So I'll have a goal, but she's like, yeah, but this applies to my clients too. Like what's another way I could, that might work better for me and my clients. So by like providing her therapy, it's making her a better provider because it's also kind of giving her like other ways to utilize the skill. Like it doesn't just have to be this way. It can also be this way or this way. Um, And so she's like found it really beneficial because again, she's treating her own need. We're addressing her own thought processing and changing a few behaviors for her, but in mastering those skills and being taught them a different way than she thinks about them currently, she now has multiple tools in her toolbox right? If she comes across a client who doesn't respond to that skill one way, she knows three other ways to teach it now. <laughs> <laughs> and that's a good thing. And that's why the more that you continue to train and help people, um, you'll be able to continue to give such great feedback to other clinicians. And, and they'll be able to emulate a lot that you're being able to put forth in your career. Um, so speaking of things you've been able to do, we're almost done, Tiffany. So I have only a few last questions for okay. you. So I want to first ask you, if you could give your younger self one piece of advice, what would you say to young Tiffany? Honestly, just do it now. The thing I didn't know is that a lot of the things I'm doing now, I didn't need a credential to do. You know, I I still love and value my education and I would have done that still, but I would have did it then, you know, the imposter syndrome that we didn't really have a word for it like 10, 20 years ago, but was really real with me. I always thought like I needed five more years of experience or I need this credential or this or whatever when I can do it right now, (laughs) right? 
Um, and so that's what I would have told younger me, which was like, you're good enough now. You're a helper now, right? Like some of the things that I do now are rooted in things I've been coaching and teaching since I was 18. I'm like, I didn't need to wait, you know, 20 years to do that. <laughs> um, so younger me would have just been do it now. It wasn't for me even a confidence thing per se, because um, confidence is experience. So it was like this, like this, this distorted thought that the credentials validated who I was and what I was doing. And then some of the things I was doing, that wasn't the case. Like, no, just do it now. Um, and a, a lot of mindset coaches will tell you that like, oh, there's always one more thing we're telling ourselves, like, I'll be ready when this, I'll be ready. No, just do now. At least take baby action steps every day. Um, because like ready is a subjective ideal. <laughs> um, so that's what I would have told younger me is like, do it now and I'm doing it. Right. I've been a helper healer since I was like five years old. Um, I've been counseling family members. I've been teaching Sunday school. I've been performing in one way or another. So I've been like public speaking, leading small groups as a teen since like I've been on the planet. So I didn't need a credential to confirm like, hey, lady, you're a healer teacher. <laughs> um, and I would have told myself that younger, like, girl, you're doing it now. Like validate what you're already doing. Like you are own that stuff now. Um, but other than that, yeah, I, I really have leaned into the mindset of like life is for me and that um, even the bad things, like they, they worked for me, you know, and so really teaching people how to reframe life to make it work for you. That's awesome, Tiffany. I think that's some, you know, definite words that we need to hear and to manifest even in our daily living today of you know, do it now, not wait for tomorrow because time is precious. And mm -hmm. there are many things that we miss out on because we're looking for the end result or what we're expecting of ourselves um, or what maybe we've seen other people do or not do, or we're living through other people. But if you can just kind of, kind of sit back, think and decide what works for you mm -hmm. and just follow your dreams, you know, any reality can, can become your purpose. So I love to hear that. So the last questions I have for you, Tiffany, if you don't mind telling our listeners, where can they find you online? And can you tell them what's next for you? Things that you have coming up very soon. Yes. Yeah, so pretty easy to find me on all social media platforms, TikTok, Instagram, YouTube, um, at Tiff Talk TV. So T-I-F-F-T-A-L-K-T-V. I'm on all social media. And then if you want to see like, how do you book me for public speaking engagements or how do you book an appointment or consultation for therapy? You can find all of that on my website at tiffanyram.com. Uh, and then what's coming next for me? Yes, I have taken a hiatus kind of from media <laughs> and I'm coming back for 2023. So um, I will be doing like TV appearances, public speaking, magazine article writing. Um, and then I have, will be launching um, the masterclass for success and sanity. So people can join the masterclass and in eight weeks we break down and you will have by the end of the course, a completed individualized success resilience map um, using the foundations um, that I live by and that I teach, uh, we will break down the fundamentals to success resilience and actually identify the, those skills individual to your personality and your journey for you. And so by the end of the eight weeks, you will in, essentially have in hand, like your master map. <laughs> I love this. So we're going to call it a 2.0 masterclass with Tiffany Ram. <laughs> I love that, Tiffany. First of all, thank you so much for giving your energy and your time here for me. I know after having a long day, we both know we need time to decompress mm. and then work through our own lives. But for you to even, first of all, agree to be on the show and talk so candidly and give such great, helpful tips to either other clients that might be looking or maybe future clients or even other counselors or people, lay people who might just want to learn more about the counseling experience. I think you did such an amazing job. Thank you again. I always am excited to have a conversation about mental health and wellness overall and how to serve our community. So I'm just grateful that you had me on. Thank you so much. Oh, no problem. And let's remember you guys to embrace our uniqueness because the world is our canvas. 
Well, Tiffany, I hope you have a great rest of your night. If you're ever interested in coming back in the future, I have a new show, which is called Embracing Your Love Marks, um, which mm -hmm. I host with um, Dorian Lake, who is one of my guests on Black Canvas. And we like to have fun. It's more behind the scenes, have a good time talking mm -hmm. and laughing and sharing. But also we do talk about like self-love and mm -hmm. if people have experienced trauma and negative experiences. We can kind of talk about healthy ways of working through it. Mm -hmm. um, through either music, through song, through through dance, through acting. We have different people on and we actually had actor um, John Minch, who's one of my good friends, um, was on recently. And so I have some new people coming very soon in the start of the year, but I would love to have you here. I think you and Touring will have a great time talking and laughing and sharing. So if you're ever interested next year, let me know and we can definitely have you back on to kind of talk directly more about self-love. Absolutely. I would be more than happy to come. That sounds like a perfect fit. <laughs> so be in touch and we will get that on the calendar. I appreciate it. Well, you have a great rest of your night and I will talk with you soon. Thank you. You too. Okay. Bye. Oh, 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 oh,